Well, good morning. All right, uh, we got 25 people in the building. Let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. That's a little better. Well, as you open your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah this morning. The book of Jonah. If you're not sure where Jonah is at, uh, you're going to want to look, uh, you're going to want to go about, uh, oh, 55, 60% of the way into the Bible. And you're going to find a whole bunch of small books with weird names. If you find a weird name uh, to a book, you're real close. You want to be looking for uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then the book of Micah is there on the other end of it. So be looking for Jonah as we uh, continue our second week now in our series that I've entitled Just Do It. And last week we looked at part one in this series where we began to lay a foundation to the importance to preaching uh, the Word of God, to make sure that we are devoted, just like the book of Acts was, to being devoted to the Apostles' teaching. We talked about what the Apostles' teaching was and where we find the Apostles' teaching in the body of the New Testament and our, the importance of, of making sure that that message centers on the message that the Apostles had, which centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We talked about the content of their message. We also talked about the outcome. Thousands were being added to the number of those who were being saved. They enjoyed fellowship. They worshipped. They had service towards one another. And we talked about the importance of that within any local church. But today we deal with the call to proclaim the message. And I'm going to parallel some things this morning. As we talk about the importance of biblical preaching, you're going to hear a lot of exhortations that I'm going to give, in fact, to people like myself, the preacher or preachers of the church. But also, we must realize that preachers aren't only the men that stand behind the pulpit or the music stand on Sunday morning. But you are all called to be preachers. My job is to articulate and to proclaim the message that God has given to me through study of the week. But you also are called to give a message. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Peter tells the, the Christians that they are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who are belonging to God that they may declare, that they may proclaim the greatness of Him who's called them out of darkness, speaking of Christ, and has brought us into His wonderful light. We are all preachers. We are all proclaimers. So you're going to see a parallel going on in today's message when we speak about the preachers who fill the pulpits as well as those who fill the office spaces, the preachers who fill the schools, the preachers who fill the neighborhoods, each one of you being those preachers. But the problem is, is that we don't have as many preachers <clears throat> as we once thought was good. We used to have a lot of people that would go out and proclaim, but in our day and age today, we have learned that many Christians, in fact, even many preachers in churches today, aren't proclaiming the message that God has given them. Why is it that we are so apprehensive to proclaiming the message? Maybe it is that we're worried that we may uh, lose some friends. Maybe it's just all out fear that you're just scared <clears throat> to death to uh, speak about Jesus Christ and the message that he's given through his word. Maybe you might lose some popularity. Maybe you might be laughed at or mocked at. Maybe you'd be viewed as extreme. And we use those right when we're going to say something at the workplace. We're going to proclaim Christ. There's this little voice that says, don't say it. You, you won't have anybody to sit with in the lunchroom. Don't say that or you might not be able to be in the in crowd at school. Don't say that because people will start to think that you're a Bible banger and you're one who holds to extreme values and beliefs. And we push those things away. But it's amazing that we do that with Christ, but we don't do that with other things in our lives. I told them I wasn't going to talk about them this morning, but I lied. We have a couple Ohio State Buckeye fans here today. Now, I told them it would be good because Bruce said he would walk out on me if I spoke badly about it. And I want to ask Guy Ferrelli and Bruce, are you still Buckeye fans? Absolutely. Look, he'll stand up. He'll say it. Now, they lost. You should be ashamed they lost. But what? You're loyal and you're committed, right? Well, we call ourselves committed and loyal to Christ, right? 
And yet we have two guys that are willing to stand and say, even though our team lost in the biggest game in college football, we still <clears throat> are committed. We're still committed. We're still loyal. I would say the same thing about my wife or my kids. If I was to go into a workplace or into any kind of social setting and someone said, you know, you need to quit talking about Amanda. You need to quit talking about the boys. You shouldn't have such extreme views about them. They're not as great as you think they are. Do you think that would change my response to people? Absolutely not. I'm loyal. I'm committed. I love them with all my heart. And nobody's view, nobody's perception about who my loved ones are is going to change the message that I have. And yet we do that with Christ. We say, well, the response is going to dictate how much or how little I'm going to articulate. Today we look at a prophet who throws all of that out of the, out of the area and says, you know what? After missing the call the first time, I'm going to hit it this time and make sure I articulate, not worrying about the response, but articulate and proclaim the message of the gospel. We see this happening not just in churches and groups of people like yourself, but sadly it is happening even within our pulpits. It's one thing for a Christian to have difficulty in sharing without fear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that God has given us as Christians. It's a whole other thing for an individual who has devoted himself to the preaching and teaching of God's word to give things up like that. Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which sits just above or just north, if you will, of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., says this about this issue, an epidemic of the powerless preaching in our culture. Much of evangelical preaching has become increasingly impotent. And sadly to say, few realize it. Like Samson, from whom the Spirit departed without his knowing it, many preachers today seem to have little awareness that God's power has vanished from their once dynamic pulpits. Rather than preaching with a renewed fervor, they're preoccupied with pouring their energies into secondary strategies, such as pursuing the latest church growth, church growth programs, alternative worship styles, and corporate marketing plans to build their churches. While some of these augmentations may have a secondary place in the church, he says, the crying need of the hour is for divine power to be restored, not only to evangelical pulpits, but to evangelical churches. But at the very heart of this crisis, he goes on, is the loss of confidence in God's power to use his word. While many hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning Scripture is without error, some preachers are unconvinced of its, its sufficiency when preached to bring about Christ's desired results. We've lost our desire. We've lost our commitment and our belief that the Scriptures are able to change lives. Do you really believe when you walk into your school, when you walk into your workplace, when you're in your neighborhood, that if you were to openly proclaim the word of God, that that proclamation might change the lives of people around you? Do you believe that with your heart? Do you believe that the scriptures can be used in such a way to change lives, to mend marriages, to deal with issues that people have struggled with all their lives? It's no doubt if we would begin to believe that with all our heart and begin to hold that as one of the key elements of everything that we do, then we would be a people who would see change lives on a daily basis. This apprehension to proclaiming biblical truth is nothing new. We see one example of Jonah in the Old Testament, his apprehension to go and teach and to proclaim the truth to the Ninevites, which we'll talk about in a moment. We also see that even Peter, one of the closest associates of Jesus, one of the chief followers of Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, instead of proclaiming, he finds himself running away even from a young peasant girl. And like many, we find ourselves in the same venue so what are we to learn this morning? Not only for you, the listener, but for me, the preacher. What are we to learn? This is very simple. We are just to proclaim the message. Don't worry about people's response. Don't worry about what it's going to do to your popularity or to your place in uh, your social gatherings in the neighborhood. 
We shouldn't worry about what it does if it runs away visitors from our church and we talk about the difficult things of God. We should preach the word. We should proclaim the word and leave the rest up to God. That's what we are called to do, and that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. But I I want to take a little time, and I want us to look through the first two chapters of Jonah as well, so we can have a foundation. I know a lot of you know Jonah, big whale, and that's about it. We're going to understand a little bit more, so we're going to stand, and I'm going to try to read uh, three full chapters to you from Jonah. So stand with me as we read the word. This is what our text says this morning. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittiah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to try to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down, uh, gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Verse 6 says, The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, literally throwing dice of some sort, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making this trouble for us. What did you do? I used to hear that all the time when I was a kid. What did you do? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you from? He answered, I am Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They uh, knew he was running from the Lord, it says parenthetically, because he had already told them so. Now the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make, uh, do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up. He said, and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you've pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew, uh, grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you have listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me uh, barred me in forever. But you brought me, my life, up from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Verse 8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. It says, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Here's our text for the morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, a city 
uh, that a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It says the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of this king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Father God, what an incredible story. Lord, we believe this story to be historical fact. We don't understand all the details. We don't understand all of that surrounds it. But we believe by faith this to be your word and your truth. And what an amazing story, Father. An amazing story about one man and one city and the proclamation of your word. Oh, Father, that we would be like John Knox who said, Give me Scotland or I'll die and went and proclaimed the word of truth to all of Scotland. That many and many multitudes of people would come to know you in one of the greatest revivals known to the land of Scotland. It takes but one man, one woman, one teenager to begin to proclaim the message of truth. And Lord, we see what you can do. So Lord, open our minds, open our hearts, give us ideas and opportunities to proclaim your message. And Lord, above all that, we pray that this uh, pulpit, this stage will always be the forerunner in proclaiming the truth. That Lord, as people listen and sit under godly teaching, that they will see courageous preaching and compelling preaching, Father, that will lead them out to do the same in their workplaces and in their lives. To you be the glory for this proclamation, for it is your word that we have been given and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. There are three things that I want to look at this morning. When we look at Jonah's life, we see three things. We see one man, Jonah, one message, God's message that is, and one method that is to preach or to proclaim. And when we see those things come together, we see one of the greatest revivals to take place in all of history. So how do we get there? How do we get to a place, whether it's here in the church or whether it's in uh, our lives as Christians, how do we begin to do that? We begin to espouse the things that Jonah was a part of. The first thing that we see when we look at Jonah's proclamation of God's message, the first thing in your outline we see is a man who was called. A man who was called. This calling, first of all, begins with a specific person. Write that in your outlines. A specific person. If you're in Jonah 3, turn back to Jonah 1 for a moment. The first verse in the text shares with us This calling, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, and I don't know exactly how you pronounce this. I tried to find it on the computer. Amiatai, Amiatai, you go with it and we'll, uh, we'll agree. Good old Ami. He was the son of Ami. Now the book begins with this calling of Jonah. Now we don't know how the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We don't know if God said, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh. We're not sure whether it happened in a dream. We're not sure another prophet came along and said, this is what you're going to do. All we know is that the author of Jonah says, Jonah was called. He was a man who was called. Now, I want you to understand something this morning. Just like Jonah, the man who preaches and teaches the Word of God each Sunday morning must be one who feels that they're called. I believe with all my heart, I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense at times, but I believe with all my heart that God has called me to the proclamation of His Word. But what we begin to think about in evangelical circles and churches is that I'm the only one in the church who's been called. 
I'm the only one who has to proclaim the message. And your job is to find a good church that has a good proclaimer, and you just sit under some great teaching, and that's all you need to do. But as I told you before, all of us are called to to proclaim the message that God has given us. There's some things we need to understand about Jonah. We know very little when it comes to his personal life. We don't know whether he was married or not. We don't know what his job was. We don't know how old he was when he received this calling. But we do understand a couple things. The first thing we understand about his calling is that he missed the calling the first time. The Bible tells us in Jonah that God calls him in verse 1. And then in verse 2, 3, and going on, it tells us that what does Jonah do? He receives the call from God and he runs away. He's a failure. He misses the call. How many of you this morning are sitting there saying, I've missed the call of God. I've missed it. It went by me, never to come again. What a great truth that Jonah shares with us, that God is patient, God is loving, and even though Jonah takes off and runs away, God gives him a second chance in chapter 3. When my parents uh, were uh, newly married, they had a, a family of three boys, Chris, Tim, and Joel, young boys, and they were at a church, and they were involved. They were teaching a young marrieds class, My dad was just falling in love with the teaching of God's Word. And the leadership of that church came to him. And they said, we have worked with Wheaton College to find a grant for you to go four years uh, expense-free to Wheaton College. And we want you to go and be a proclaimer of God's message. We believe there's a calling on your life to do this. My dad says, and he will not be embarrassed to say this, As quick as that offer came out, he looked at the three boys and he said these words, but who is going to put diapers on the babies when I'm going to school? My dad says he hated the words that came out of his mouth because he had missed a calling by God. But you know what the amazing thing is? Some uh, 16 years later, what happens? God comes around again. The Bill Bedall chapter 3 rolls into play. He had missed the first calling of God. He had looked at his circumstances, more important than looking at his calling. And what happens? God comes back around. And God says, it is time for you to proclaim the message. And just like Jonah, my dad got it right. And my dad is ministering, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. But how about you? When has God called you to speak to that person in your workplace? When has God called you to take a stand in your school or a stand in your neighborhood and you have, just like Jonah, run away from God? Well, there's good news for you. The Bible is full of failures, so if you're failing in the calling of God, take heart that God calls failures. He called Moses, who was a failure, before he got his act together. He called Abraham, who at times was a failure, before he really got his act together. Samson, David, all these, a litany of them, found themselves at a place of failure. Even Simon Peter, after failing and denying Christ, as I said, God restores him, Christ restores him, and calls him to be a great Christian leader in the new church. God's not done with you. Maybe you've missed the calling this morning. Maybe you've missed the opportunity that God had. And maybe, and just because it happened for Jonah and it happened for my dad and other people, sometimes that calling doesn't come back exactly the way that it may have the first time. But ask God and go to God and say, God, I do believe I'm called. I do believe that you've called me to do something for you. And I want to do it, even if I've missed it before. So we see Jonah is a man who is called, even though he missed the calling. Now, why would he miss the calling? If you heard the word from the Lord that says, I want you to go to Nineveh or to go to Sugar Grove or to go to uh, your workplace, whatever it may be entitled to your school, you would think, you know what, I probably would do it. I probably would go ahead and, and be a part of that. The problem is, is the place that God called him to. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2 that he was to go and serve a place called Nineveh. It was to be a place called Nineveh. He wasn't to serve in Jerusalem or Samaria. 
He wasn't to serve in, in his homeland, but he was called somewhere else. Right now at this point, we have Jonah living somewhere in modern day Israel. We don't know exactly where he started in his journey. We know where he ran to. It says to Tarshish, and then he ends up in Joppa. We know that, uh, that what happens is, is that he want, he's called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. If you see the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that pours into uh, the Persian Gulf, right between those two great rivers, on the Tigris River, is the city of Nineveh. It is a historical city. We know it was there. In fact, there are even uh, times right now that uh, even when Saddam Hussein was living, was ruling, he was rebuilding the city of Nineveh. This is a real place. This isn't some fairy tale. Now, we know that the city of Nineveh was the capital city of a people called the Assyrians. The Assyrians. Now, three times we're told that this city was a great city in the text. That means it was large. It was a metropolis. And in fact, it says in Jonah 3.3 that it was a very important city, a visit that would require three days, which means that it would take three days to walk through it, which meant the circumference of the city and the suburbs was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 60 miles. This was a big city. Now, the text tells us later on uh, in Jonah 4.11 how many possible people may have been living there. In Jonah 4.11, it says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be, God is speaking to Jonah, concerned about this great city? Now, there's speculation. Does that 120,000 mean the inhabitants of the land? Does it just mean the children, those who don't know the right hand from their left? What does it mean? We don't know. All we do know is that there's at least 120,000 people the size of approximately Aurora in this great city. Now, to put that in perspective, Samaria had a total of 30,000 people at the time. Jerusalem, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 15,000 people. This would have been the biggest city that Jonah had seen. It was a menacing city. There was a 50-foot foot, uh, wide wall, 100 feet high, that protected the city. It was a deterrent to any invading army. Now, why would they have such a deterrent? The reason why was Nineveh had many enemies. The Assyrians were people that were hated. And the reason why they were hated is they were a cruel and vicious people. We know that uh, from history it tells us that the Ninevites were known to sacrifice their own children to gods. They would also brutalize any POWs that they were able to catch in war. It wasn't enough just to imprison them. It wasn't just enough to even put them to death, but they would humiliate them, tearing off all their clothes, parading them through the streets while they were beating the POWs. And they would not end their lives. They would wait with their beatings that the lives of the soldiers would finally die and they would be ended. These were a vicious people. I do want to add a disclaimer here this morning. I am half Assyrian. And what I know from the text, of course, is that the Assyrians also were good looking, that you don't see that in your text. But I want to add a component to this this morning. In fact, in, it, it got so bad, these Ninevites, these Assyrians, and we see their exploits throughout Scripture. Why does he not want to go? Well, he knows that, and I don't know when Nahum would have been written in accordance as the minor prophets went down, but this would have been known amongst the people. Nahum 3.1, God says in an oracle to Nahum the prophet, Woe to Nineveh, the city of blood that is full of lies, full of plunder, and never without victims. Now, do you want to go to a place like that? If God said, all right, I'm going to send you to the worst place you could go, are you going to want to go? I want to assure you of something. This was not an easy task for Jonah. That's why he runs. Nineveh and the Assyrians were the sworn enemy of God, yet that's exactly where God called them to minister One of the commentaries said Nineveh was probably the most difficult place of all places 
to minister to. And I can tell you even today amongst the Assyrians that I, I call my own family and my own people, they are a difficult people to share the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Why? Because they see what God has told us about our people. And they cringe and they become angry at God. And they say, you know what? I'd rather go pursue other things than to pursue a God who says he hates my people. And yet that is where Jonah is called. What's the application this morning to that? We all serve in Nineveh's, don't we? We all have places that are Nineveh's. Places that we would rather die than find ourselves going and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are Nineveh's in our neighborhoods. There are Nineveh's in our workplaces, in our schools, where people despise the teaching of the Word of God. And if you've ever seen anybody articulate the gospel in those settings, you've only seen them walk away beaten up, battered, mocked, and sent away. And yet, you know what? Jonah was called. There was no question. There was no second or third option. Just as Jonah has called, or so just as Jonah was called by God, so you have been called by God. There are times that I don't feel like preaching. There are times where texts start saying things that I wish they didn't say. There are texts that I don't want to have to preach. But there's no option when we are proclaiming the Word of God. There's no option in God's calling. Jonah was called to a very difficult place, and he was called to go. Now look at what happens next. There was a specific purpose. Look at what he was to do. It says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Go to the great city of Nineveh, and listen to what he says, and preach against it, because of its wickedness has come up before me. Now that sounds pretty easy. Go to a city that hates your God, hates your people, that kills anybody that they don't like, And tell them about a God who is going to come and destroy them. That sounds like an easy task, doesn't it? Think about if God tonight wakes you up after you have this real weird dream and says, All right, I want you to go to your place of work and I want you to preach against them. Don't do anything at work tomorrow. You just go in and walk in and say, In 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. And see how far you get with that one. I'll watch all of it unfold on Fox News. But that's what Jonah is called to do. The purpose that Jonah has isn't to start a halfway house. The purpose that Jonah is given isn't to try to feed the hungry or to make inroads. God says you go in and day one you start proclaiming the message I've given to you. There's a specific purpose to what he's doing. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Jonah 3, verse 2. Because he gets commanded a second time. After he wanders around, gets swallowed by the fish, hangs in the fish for three days and three nights, gets vomited out. Right when he gets on dry land, God goes again. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. There are two things that I want to pull from that verse very quickly. First of all, God gives him the method. He says, go and proclaim. Go and preach. That's what you're to do. Don't do anything else. Just preach. But the second thing that he says that is so comforting, he says, go and preach the message I've given to you. Now understand something very quickly this morning. God doesn't just say to us, go. Go do something. Go into all the world. And we don't turn around and say, but God, what are we to do? God gives us what we are to do. We are to proclaim the message, the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have had, have done before you and commanded you to do. And we're to go. But he doesn't just leave us in the going. He gives us the message that we are to give. Don't ever worry when you are proclaiming Don't ever worry about when you are presenting the good news of Jesus Christ that you're not going to have the words to say. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared. But don't worry about the details of the conversation. Don't try to figure out exactly how you're going to go from this point to this point. Just start proclaiming. Jonah's told, go preach the message that I'll give to you. God gives the message to that which he is called to proclaim. And we always need to be aware of that. We always need to understand that. But look at what it says next. We see that the message isn't Jonah's message, but it's God's message. 
We need to remember this as Christians. This isn't just him going out and doing what he wants to do, but God's put particular emphasis on what is to be proclaimed. Proclaim my message. Be very, be very wary when a church starts to proclaim the preacher's message. Be very worried about when you start hearing more about what I have to say about a specific topic than what God's Word says about a specific topic. My job is to be an announcer. I have a big megaphone. And my megaphone, all I'm supposed to say in the megaphone is, Thus saith the Lord. This is what God has called me to say. Likewise, when you go out into the community, make sure you're not uh, pitching your message about hope, about love, about contentment. You make sure that you're there with the megaphone and saying, Thus saith the Lord. This is the message God has given me. Well, we see something that takes place in that leading. Look to your second point this morning. We see that Jonah's proclamation of God's message not only involved him in a specific place, and a specific purpose of preaching, but it involved a message that was characterized by certain elements. There's some characters, qualities, to this message that he's proclaiming. Now look at uh, verse uh, 3 and 4 of Jonah 3. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, a city that required three days' visit. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, at this point, Jonah finds himself being called by God. And after that whole issue with the whale and everything, he finally gets his head on straight and he says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. Have you ever had an opportunity or a time that has passed in your life where you had a chance to proclaim the gospel and you missed it? God rattles your cage a little bit, starts to get you thinking about you missing out on some opportunities, and then God brings you another chance. You say, you know what, I don't want to miss it again. I don't want to miss out on the opportunity because who knows the hour or day. No one knows what uh, will come in one man's life. I want to take every opportunity and make the most of it for Christ Jesus. So Jonah goes, heads to Nineveh, and we see a couple characteristics about his message. First of all, it was a courageous message. It was courageous. Look at verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and the, uh, of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Let's stop there for a moment. This is important. Now we would usually gloss by this thing. He went to Nineveh. If we don't remember the context. Jonah goes to a place that hates him. Jonah goes to a place that all they would want to do is to hurt him or to kill him. And what does the text say? Jonah went to Nineveh. Was he scared? I'm sure. Was he worried about what may befall him in Nineveh? Absolutely. Are those normal feelings? Yes. But Jonah went. Are you going to be scared when you proclaim the message of God in your school or workplaces? Absolutely. Are those fears real? Yes. Are those fears sin? I don't think so. It's, a, it's part of the human element of who we are. We, we want to be loved. We want to be desired. But we need to push those away and say, you know what? That's not what God has for the best of me. And I'm to push those fears away and do exactly what Jonah did. Now, he could have rationalized. If you're like me, you won't just outright say no, but you'll rationalize things. And so what might Jonah have been rationalizing as he's walking and there was a, quite a distance that he had to walk to get to Nineveh? I wonder if in his thoughts he was thinking like I would. Okay, now, God, if I go into Nineveh and day one I proclaim your message and they kill me, well, then not many people are going to hear your gospel. So let's talk about this for a moment. Because if you've got a dead prophet, then you've got no prophecy. And no prophet, no prophecy means the Ninevites are in trouble. So let's talk about this for a moment, God. You need me. So don't kill me. Leave me alive for a while. So maybe what I'll do is I won't come out real heavy with the, with the articulation of your truth just yet. I'll start out with some good stories about me growing up. I'll talk about some of the things that went on in my life and maybe tell a few jokes to kind of lighten up the Nineveh crowd. And you know what? Sad but true, 
that's what we do in pulpits many times. Now, I believe that there's a place for laughter in the time of the congregation and the hearing of the word. I think there's a time to share stories to help people apply it. But if you're getting one story after another sandwich between a couple jokes and the word of God is never being articulated to a people who need to hear it, then it's time to go shopping for a new church. It's not a time to have Comedy Central Hour or to make sure you feel good, but it's time to go into a city like Nineveh or to a place like Village. Bible Church and articulate the Word of God, not worrying about what people are going to say. That is what Jonah was called to do, and it takes courage. It takes courage. The second thing we see is that not only was it a courageous message, but it also was a compelling message. It also was a compelling message. Verse 4 tells us that Jonah proclaimed the message. That's exactly what he was called to do. He was called to proclaim the message. He wasn't just to share everyday news with them, but he was to share news that meant life or death. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It will be overturned, the NIV says. This wasn't something that could be whispered. He couldn't go into the city of Nineveh and say, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Hey, by the way, God's coming. And so was his wrath. No, the idea of proclaimed in the Hebrew literally means he announced, he heralded this. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. Do something about it. This word in the Hebrew literally means that to summon, to uh, act up or to speak, uh, eliciting a response. What his call was to be was to elicit people to respond. And that's what Jonah was called to do. Likewise, we're called to do that as well. Whether it's in the uh, church setting, as I go and I proclaim the message, my job is to elicit a response. I don't want you just to hear my words and say, well, that's a good message. He did a nice job of articulating the truth. But it is to elicit, what am I supposed to do about it? What am I supposed to do with the message God has given me? My preaching is to proclaim that. Likewise, as you proclaim the message of God, you are to elicit a response. Don't just share something. It's just, you know, hey, I, I was learning at church that Jesus is your only hope. And, and I don't know what you're to do with it, but he's the only hope. You are to say to someone, Jesus is your only hope. And the reason why Jesus is there and he is your hope is because you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you're not the only sinner, but we've all been created sinful. And we are an affront to a holy God. And God in his grace and mercy put Jesus on this earth to live a holy life, to die on the cross. For what? For you, the one without hope. Well, what are you to do with it? You are to trust and give your life to Jesus Christ. A lot of us just want to be, as I've said before, chicken soup for the soul. We just want to share just a couple quick little dandy thoughts. We don't want to get too tied up with the whole Christian doctrine and the whole issue of sin and repentance. So we just share some words. Well, God loves you and God will take care of you. And we make sure that we're halfway doctrinally correct. But this is not what Jonah does. He articulates the truth clearly and it compels them to have to answer the next thing that we see is that it was confrontational i love what uh, george whitfield uh, said he said i love preachers who thunder out the word of god because the world must be awakened from its deep sleep when you proclaim the message of God, is it awakening the people around you? Is it shaking them up? Is it rattling them as if they're in some slumber saying, God is coming! And God's Word says that there's wrath coming if you're not found in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. We do not know the hour or the day, but turn to Jesus and do it now. Is your proclamation of the message of God shaking people at their very foundations and moving them to elicit a response? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that proclamation of the gospel is theology coming through a man on fire. It's coming through a person who is on fire that articulates truth, but there is an incredible passion behind it. It is a compelling and confrontational message. Look at verse 
4. It says, on the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Understand this. Jonah doesn't go into the city and say, God loves everybody. God just wants to take care of you. He doesn't say, no matter how bad you've been, don't worry about it. When we get to heaven, everything is all figured out and we all live happily ever after. Now, that message might have gone over well with the Ninevites. You keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about things. That's how you were made. That's your excuse. You just, you got a Syrian blood in you and you're just a little too hyperactive and a little too brutal for everybody else's taste. But God's okay with that. He doesn't say that. He articulates confrontation. Forty days and you will be dead. Forty days. Now, that's an amazing thing because that is a truth that we miss out on. Now, that's only one half of the truth that Jonah's articulating. That's all that God gave him at that point. Forty days and you're all dead. You're all going to be dead. Now, we need to understand as Christians, that's an important truth. We need to understand that the reason why we, because the message that is being uh, spun around a lot right now is, is the message Jesus is all about love. There's no wrath. There's no, there's no anger. There's no justice. Just Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves everybody. He loves everybody in every lifestyle and everyone who, who lives in sin. He, he loves you. And, and don't worry about it. It all gets worked out. But that's not the message that Jonah gives. Jonah gives an opposite message. There's nothing about God's love. There's nothing about God's compassion. Forty days, y'all dead. It's over. We need to have a part of that in our gospel presentation. There is a time coming where there will be a whole lot of people who will be weeping and who will gnash their teeth because of the pain that will be inflicted upon them in a literal place called hell. And we need to articulate that the reason why people will be sent there is because they have been an affront to a holy God and lived lives of rebellion towards them. Now you say, why do you have to say that? It's going to turn people off. That's confrontational. I'd say, say it with some grace. Don't beat it down their throats, but articulate that truth. The truth is confrontational, not the way that you do it. It doesn't have to be. But why do we do that? Because why would you ever pitch grace and mercy and the love of Jesus if there wasn't the justice of God, if there wasn't the holiness of God, if there wasn't the wrath of God, if there wasn't a penalty for sin from God? Who cares about God's grace? Who cares about God's love? I don't need God's grace and God's love unless there's wrath that is coming. So the first thing that Jonah articulates is a confrontational message about the wrath of God. But notice, here's the balance. Notice what's to happen next. Our message should always reflect God's compassion. It should always reflect God's Compassion. Now, this isn't seen in Jonah. Jonah's ticked off still that he has to go and talk with the Ninevites. He's upset. He doesn't want to go talk with his, uh, his enemies. He doesn't want to talk with them because he has this idea that God may save them. Do you have some people in your life that you don't want to witness to because God might save them? And then that may mean your walk may be brought into question when they get fired up about God? I'd rather just be the lukewarm Christian amongst a bunch of pagans than to have a couple of my friends or my work uh, partners get saved and then start seeing the double standard live that I've lived. That's what Jonah's talking about. He says, I don't want them to be saved. They shouldn't be saved. And we've got a whole list of people in our lives that we think that about. They don't deserve salvation. And we miss the idea of grace. But look at what it says in verse 2 of chapter 4. It says, before we go there, let's look at, look at something else here. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Where is the compassion seen in that confrontational message? It is, it is shared here. Forty more days. Underline, circle that word in your Bible. That is compassion. Why? God gave him time. He doesn't say if you spend 40 days doing this or that, but God gave time. He gave time. He gave a window of opportunity. Opportunity to do do what? He doesn't say, but there's time. We deserve the wrath of God right here, right now. 
Jonah shouldn't have even gone to the city. That was grace in itself, that God would send a prophet to proclaim to the Ninevites that they needed to hear from God and, and to understand the judgment of God was coming. And that's grace. It's grace that 40 days are given, and we see that throughout the text. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I, speaking of God, do I take any pleasure in the delight, I'm sorry, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their evil ways and live? Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. And he passed, speaking of God, in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. But listen, there's the love of God. Here's the balance. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. For he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Understand this. God is a holy God and he will get justice in his way. But understand, amidst that judgment, amidst that wrath, God is not eager that any would perish, but all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there's a great balance. The wrath of God and yet the love of God. The compassion is seen in Jonah 4, chapter 2, where it says that as uh, Jonah has proclaimed the message, he speaks that he is long-suffering and full of compassion. Our job isn't just to beat people down with the gospel. Please hear me. It isn't to articulate truth to hurt somebody or to use it as our baseball bat. But as one beggar tells another beggar where to find bread, we say, I learned that there was a holy God and I needed a Savior. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift that he sent us Jesus. And we can take care of that wrath and that judgment. We can do that by bowing the knee and living for Christ Jesus confrontational message that is full of compassion. The third thing we see this morning is that this mission, that Jonah's proclamation of God's message involved a mission that produces certain consequences. What happens when we proclaim a message like this? Well, Jonah goes to a pagan city, one man, one message, just so you know, in our NIV Bible, the message was eight words long. How do you like a message like that on Sunday morning? Eight words long. And what happens? He doesn't dance around. He doesn't appeal to their senses. He doesn't try to make them feel good. He confronts them with the truth. And what happens? Is he laughed at? No. Is he hurt? No. Is he killed? No. Is he thrown out the city? No. Look at what happens. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They believed God. We need to understand that when we proclaim the message, oftentimes it will result, first of all, in a salvation-producing revival. It's going to involve people coming to know God. In this situation, people coming to know Christ now in our situation. Don't think that you're just going to proclaim the message and they, people are never going to do anything. Elicit a response. What will you do with this Jesus? What he said is that wrath is coming. What are you going to do about it? He doesn't even give them the, the words or the things that they need to do. So what happens? They believe. They believe that God is true in his judgment. They don't question the wrath of God. They don't doubt the wrath of God. They believe the wrath of they believe the wrath of God is coming. Now, if you thought that this is some casual belief, this is the same Hebrew word for believe that describes that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is not casual faith. This is not just some mental ascent. Yeah, we believe God's coming with his wrath. But this literally is a change of heart shown by vibrant and a confident faith. Let us never forget that the proclamation of the word of God, whether in a church or whether in your place of business or work or play, is the place and the primary change agent for God to save souls. It's to change souls. It's to save them of their sins. Now notice what happens. It's a sobering revival. Notice they don't believe God and a party doesn't break out. It doesn't say, oh, wow, we believe God's going to come and destroy us. La-dee-dee, la-dee-da. That's not what happens. They don't talk about dancing in the street. What takes place? It says they declared a fast and they put on sackcloth, it says in verse 5. It was a time of repentance. Don't proclaim the message of the gospel 
and just be just all excited and say, just, just say, pray this prayer and, and, and just believe God. You love God and, and maybe sing Jesus loves me a couple times. And then when you're done, man, there's a party in heaven. We're all excited. Well, that's true. When one turns to Christ, there is a celebration in heaven. But remember that just because someone has prayed a prayer, just because someone says, I love Jesus and he loves me, there is some work that needs to be done. Not a work that saves, but a work that proves that that salvation is genuine. What do they do? They say, we believe in God. Well, how are we going to prove our belief in God? Let's put on sackcloth, a burlap outfit that was abrasive to the body, that was would bring on pain to the individual, to put that individual into agony. Why would you do that? Because they said, God, we want you to understand that we are symbolizing the agony that we have over our sin. Place yourself in ashes. That was the most humble and uh, humiliating place to be. So what do they do? They put ashes on themselves. They sit in sackcloth. And what do they do? They say, God, we repent of our sins. And while you are a good God, a compassionate God, one who is slow to anger, I know that you've saved me from a punishment that would lead to death. And for this, I repent of my sins, knowing that it took the death, burial, and resurrection of your son to take care of that in my life. Now notice what happens next. There's a sweeping Revival. Look at verse 5. They declared a fast. And then look what it says. And all of them, from the greatest to the least. What happens? We need to understand when we proclaim the gospel, it isn't just for some certain social economic circles. It isn't just for the older people. It isn't just for the teenagers. But it is for all people. The rich, the poor. It says that even the the fast that had been declared by the people even rose to the king where he took off his royal robes and he himself got in sackcloth and placed ashes upon himself. This was a sweeping revival. Understand this. We don't proclaim the word of God just to certain people. I get worried when I hear churches say that they're picking out their demographic, their people that they're going to reach. I understand that we're going to reach certain people maybe more effectively than others. But never forget that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is to the oldest down to the youngest. It is to the richest down to the poorest. It is to the chief of sinners and it's to the people that think they are the best of saints. It is for all people everywhere to repent and confess their sin before God. It is a sweeping revival. Have you ever thought that maybe if you just went out and shared the gospel with a co-worker, a person in school, that maybe in God's will and God's intention that it may be used to change your whole workplace for Him? It was sweeping. It took everybody by storm. One final thing we see is that it was a sanctifying revival. Look at verse 8. It says this, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They even put it on the beasts of the uh, of the fields, the animals. But look at what it says. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. How do we know this was a true uh, salvation experience for these people? We know it to be true because they gave up sin and they turned to God and they gave up their evil ways. That's what God calls us to do, to stop living the way we used to live. Turn to Christ and in Him we find salvation. But that means that we must turn from our evil ways. And that's exactly what they did. It was a sweeping revival that brought forth the setting apart, the holiness of the people as a result of them turning to God. Let me just close with this thought. One person with one message can change one person by articulating the truth. It can change one workplace. It can change one school. It can change one community. My friends, we have seen this nation in the Great Awakening be taken over by the power of Almighty God where people's lives were changed and it started with just one flicker of a prophet getting up and declaring the truth of God's message. Who are you to articulate to? Who is your Nineveh this morning? And what is the message that God has given you? Proclaim the message, giving the reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, and leave the results up to God. In Jonah's case, it was the greatest revival ever recorded in Scripture, and it took one person. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you.
And we praise you this morning. Father, we praise you for the revival of the Ninevites. Lord, I thank you that you used Jonah, a prophet who was reluctant, a prophet who was rebellious, a prophet who did not fully understand, and, and, and even when he did understand, he ran away from you. And yet, Lord, you use them. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful that you use people like Jonah. You use people like me. Everyday people. People with issues. People that struggle with sin. And you use us. And you give us this treasure that is made and contained in clay. In jars of clay, Father. To give your treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be a people in this church who would be on fire about going to work, going to school, not just to get a paycheck or to get grades, but to proclaim the God-given message that you have for us. And that, Lord, we would see people come to know you, that they would turn from their sin. Father, I pray that this pulpit would be a pulpit that preaches and proclaims a God-given message. It doesn't just make people feel good, but confronts the issue of sin and the holiness of God and that the only answer is Christ Jesus. Lord, it's there that we see lives are transformed. And it's there in transformed lives that we see that you receive glory, honor, and praise. So, Lord, we are thankful again as we continue to work through this series of teaching us and training us and reminding us of the importance of your word and the proclamation of it, that we would never shy away from it, but that we would be courageous in articulating the truth without hesitancy, and without fear. Oh, Lord, we need your strength. We need your Spirit to move in our hearts to get this job done. So we ask that your Spirit would come upon us and refine us and ground us and equip us with the gifts to be able to get this done to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.